All right. Good morning, friends. Hope you guys are well. You smell the chicken and dumplings, do you? Yep. We're going to go a long time, though, so just kidding. <laughs> let's, uh, flip, <laughs> let's flip over to uh, Romans chapter 1. We're going to continue in our verse-by-verse study here through Romans. I wasn't here last week. Uh, Jeff filled in for me. Uh, I watched it. I think he did a good job. Um, and, uh, but before that, a few weeks ago, two weeks before that, we started Romans. And remember, we looked at uh, chapter uh, 1, verse 16, and 17 is kind of the theme verse. So I want to kind of jump back there briefly. He says there in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And we'll go back over that in a moment. Uh, but was, as we get into the book of Romans, remember it's going to be, it's a letter to the Romans. Paul wanted to visit them, but he writes ahead of time to let them know that he's coming. And in the first 15 verses, mostly personal uh, greetings, desires that he has to be there. Uh, and then he shares a desire with them. And this is what we talked about uh, two weeks ago, where he says, look, I, I'm hoping to come and visit you. And I know that from my visit, what God is doing in my faith will be a blessing to you. And I'm hoping that what God is doing with your faith is going to be a blessing uh, to me. And that's something that's it's really important because even though the book of Romans is kind of a treatise or an explanation of how salvation works, why salvation is needed, why Jesus' sacrifice was relevant and his resurrection is relevant, and then how we can live a sanctified or a set-aside life for God. So that everything that he's going through and explaining uh, in this, in, at this point, it all centers on this gospel idea. It all centers on how you and I can, can be saved. This is um, foundationally important because he goes through some very difficult passages, especially for the society we live in today. And he has some very difficult things to say. So as we're kind of considering these things, we're considering the, con- the uh, context behind all these things. It's important to remember, he is eager to preach the gospel. His heart in going to Rome, and, and for context sake, not to, to beat a dead horse here, but I don't, I don't think we want to stray from this. Remember what Rome is like, okay? 60 million slaves. Uh, judicially, you could, if you had a death sentence, you could offer your slave up instead, and that your slave could be slain in your stead. Radical sexual immorality. Um, you know, I mean, even down to they purposely had open. I don't know if you've. Uh, I've never been to Rome. I've looked at a lot of the different uh, architecture and so forth. Many of their toilets were just public. Like you just were walking down the road. There's a line of toilets. You just go there. There's there's no modesty, no nothing. Everything was just completely out there. A very radical, uh, over-sexualized type of place. So when, he, when he's writing these things, he's writing to his people, his heart is not condemnation, it's not anger, it's not wrath. His heart is to preach the gospel so that people can be saved. It's really important that we establish that. See, from the very first uh, verse in Genesis until the last verse in Revelation, the whole Bible really can be summed up into this idea that everything that God does is to bring human beings back to himself. Every single thing that he does. When you look at how men and women fell, when you look at the redemption plan, when you look at even when God calls Israel and says, I want you to go to the Amorites and I want you to kill every man, woman, and child. When, he, when, when Christ comes on the scene, every single thing that was done was to preserve the lineage of Christ, to preserve the Savior coming, and that hu- humans can be saved. So why bring that up now? I'm backloading and I'm kind of doing a large preamble before we jump into the second half because I don't know what your Christian life was as you grew up. I don't know what churches you grew up in, but my Christian life, when I got saved when I was 16, I went right into, got saved through a ministry that was incredibly legalistic. And so God to me for, you know, yes, there was grace and these kind of things that were kind of like a side note, but realistically it was presented more like this that pretty much the father is the judge, and he's really chapped. And so then Jesus came and kind of calmed him down a little bit by sacrificing himself according to his will, the father's will on the cross. And that by Jesus' blood, there isn't abundant salvation, but it's kind of like this, almost like a loophole. Like God's really angry, 
Jesus talks him down, and then and Jesus is like, hey, I shed my blood. Now you kind of have to forgive these people. And the father's like, okay, if I must. You know, you did this. I'll make this contractual deal. I'll have a covenant with you. I'll forgive you because of my son's blood. And then from there on out, he's just really angry. And we better work hard, and we better be faithful, and we better do these things. And then if we've been good boys and girls, maybe we'll get into heaven. And, and, and so when we get into Romans chapter 1, there's a lot about sexuality in this chapter. There's a lot about sin in this chapter. And it has always been given to me or was taught to me in kind of a vein of, yeah, these stinking, grody, nasty sinners. And this is not the vein of it. Because since every verse has to be true, we, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe on him should not perish but have everlasting life, has to be just as true as that those who reject him store up wrath for that day. See, they coexist. There's a lot about wrath in here. There's a lot about coming judgment and all those things. But the coming judgment coexists with the fact that God loves every single human being. The love of God doesn't check out in John, at the end of John chapter 3 and then pick up with hate in Romans chapter 1. The love of God is always true through the whole thing. So when we talk about biblical context and there's a, there's a kind of a systemic context through the whole Bible, which is this. God created human beings. God loves human beings. God, human beings sinned against God. And God has done everything for the last 6,000 years to bring them back to himself to have a loving relationship of eternal value. So it's with that backdrop, it's with that understanding when we dig into a, a difficult and hard section, but true section of Scripture, that we have to see it through those lenses and how it works. That these Scriptures, they're not written to despise people or measure people or judge people. One of the things we're going to talk about is wrath. And it's interesting because what you'll see here in this particular chapter, and if we were to go through, if, if you look up every single instance of God's wrath in the New Testament, it is not being exercised today. In fact, every reference in the New Testament is that, yes, his wrath is there, it abides, but it is for a certain day. It is not occurring right now. And so as we, as we consider these things and what it means that his wrath is upon unrighteous, these different things, it's really important that we're not, not to be so technical that we detooth the scripture. Maybe you've heard that, you know, don't detooth the scripture. Don't take the bite out of scripture about sin. Nobody's trying to take the bite out of scripture about sin. Everybody involved in sin knows how it ends up in the end, and there's plenty of bite to go around. But what we, would, what we do want to look at <clears throat> excuse me, is how and what exactly is happening and how God looks at it, and how in his response to it, both now and then. So in this, this, this book, the, the book of Romans, in these first few chapters, about two and a half chapters, we're going to talk about three different sets of people. Paul is. We're only going to cover uh, one set of people today, and that's just the, to finish off chapter one. The first set of people that we're going to talk about today is interesting because he uses the word men, first and foremost, but it's men, it means, it's Greek, it's anthropos, which is just human beings, humankind, mankind. Man and womankind, person kind, however you'd like to phrase it. It just means the race of human beings. And then from that point forward, he's just going to talk about they, 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 and it's all in past tense. Then in chapter 2, he's going to talk about a different set of people. He's going to talk about Gentiles, people that are not Jews, people that didn't have the law. Then he's going to talk about a third set of people, and this third set of people are Jews that had the law. And a little spoiler alert, the conclusion from this historical people, and it's debated in Romans 1, is it speaking of a pre-flood uh, set of people? Is it, is it what led up to the flood? Is it speaking of a pre-Abrahamic uh, people before Abraham and, and Judaism is introduced into history? Or you know, when is it? it? We don't know entirely. But what we'll find is as we study it, they're the same. It doesn't matter if it's 6,000 years ago or if it's today. Human beings really don't change that much. <laughs> We're very similar. And so he, in, this, in this set of people, and in all of them, what we're going to find is two things. Number one, every single person is judged by the light that they have. In other words, every single person that stands before God, they're judged by what they did with the understanding, however great or however small it is, they're judged by that. And number two, there is not a single person on the planet, nor has there ever been a single person on the planet that died in ignorance of who God is. Now, obviously, we're not talking about Jesus, but of who God is. And that distinction's in here. Don't worry. We're not going to deviate from there's only one name under heaven by which a person may be saved. We're not talking about Chrislam here. We're talking about in different times, 
in different ways, how did God judge people and how did people act? What, how did we get to where we are today? And how can we, as an application, understand these things and then move forward with the gospel and with care in times where the society seems to be going crazy? And so that's what we're looking at today. So as he says there in chapter 1 and verse 16, just by review, number one, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God to salvation. And just to make a point, I think this is an important point by review, things that we're ashamed of are typically things that we find to be weak, Right? If we're ashamed of something about our body, if we're ashamed of something in our home, you know, if you, if you go on a mad scramble because you're having people over, and it's because you're ashamed of the mess, right? People would look at this, and they'll find weakness in this, and therefore, I'm going to clean it up. Or you don't find shame in that. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying that when you experience shame, typically, what you're experiencing is that you have evaluated something about yourself or someone else, you found it lacking, and you want to hide it. So when, when Paul comes along, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Anybody here ever felt ashamed of the gospel? I definitely have. I'm just going to say it out loud. I have definitely been like, is this really going to be helpful to someone? Am I, or like just scared to tell someone about the gospel? Like, are they going to reject me? Are they going to reject Jesus? Is this going to be? that? Because that, ultimately, when I'm experiencing that, what I'm saying is I'm not entirely sure or I'm afraid of the reaction I'll get from this person or maybe the gospel won't actually help in this situation. I wouldn't necessarily verbalize that in my mind. I would just feel timid and weird about it. So he says, because he's come to the, Paul says, I've, because he's come to this place, having been involved with the preaching of the gospel, observing what it did in his life, observing what it did in others' lives, he comes to a conclusion. He says, I am not ashamed of it. I feel no shame about it because experientially he's only seen the, all the good that comes from it and that only good can come from it. So he makes this statement. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I want to go to Rome. I want to preach it to everybody who's in Rome. It is the power or the dynamic. It's the very way that God has made for a person to be saved. And then he says, he goes on, he says to the Jew and then to the Greek, which was uh, more of a timeline issue. It's not that, in fact, he's going to later on in Romans, he's going to say, what advantage does a Jew have over a Greek? As far as, he asked the question twice. The first time he says the Jews had the law and the Savior came to the Jews, and so that was an advantage. The second time he asked the question, he says, what advantage does a Jew, in a different context, what advantage does the Jew have over the Gentile? He says none. So the idea here is that the gospel, you know, in a linear fashion came to Jews first, which we saw with Jesus, we saw with Paul, and then it came to Gentiles later. Later being like, well, no, no, sorry, not really. It was just like you, had, you just had more of an emphasis to the Gentiles later. So he says there, uh, he, he goes on and he says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. So in the gospel, and this is our, our, the ground we're laying for this, in the gospel he says the righteousness of God is revealed. Now for us, revealed is the word, or for the Greek, the word is apocalypteo, or apocalypto, depending on your tense, right? And that's a very bad pronunciation. We'll say that right now. So when we say apocalypse, what do we mean? You usually it's like some news story or something like that, and they're like, this event was an apocalyptic event. And they're not saying this event was revealed. They're saying this event was like huge destruction, like a massive event. Like you guys, Fukushima was apocalyptic. And what occurred there and the, the loss of life, all it was apocalyptic, right? That's not actually what the word means. It's not necessarily, it's kind of what we've kind of turned it into. But really, the word is just to mean to reveal. Like, for example, our book of Revelation, that title is Apocalypteo. It's just, it's to reveal, it's, it's a revelation. So I say that because when it says that the righteousness of God is revealed, that's the word that's used there. That God's righteousness has been revealed. It's been shown. It's been uh, uh, given and, and, and able to be appropriated. Okay? And this is going to come into play later with wrath too. So what's being said here is not that God has shown up and now his righteousness as who he is, like his personal attribute of being righteous has been seen. It's actually, it can be difficult to kind of work through in the, in the English. They're, they're doing the best translation that they can. But ultimately, the idea for us in, in our modern English is that the righteousness that God has for human beings has been revealed through the gospel. Does that make sense? So it's not, it's, it's not just that God has been revealed as being righteous, but that there is a righteousness for us, a justification, a redemption, different words that are used in the New Testament, that has been, can be appropriated or given to us 
through faith in what Jesus Christ did at Calvary. So he's just reestablishing before he goes into some of this difficult territory that righteousness, being right with God, always comes on faith. It always be, and even all the way back to Abraham, when God comes to Abraham and says, hey, I'm going to make of you a great nation and the whole earth is going to be blessed through you. And Abraham literally is like, okay. And he says, hey, you're righteous. He says, you're right with me because I said I was going to bless you and you believed me. So now you're right with me. It seems kind of obscene. It seems a little bit different than kind of the normal way of how we think. We like uh, atonement. We like working hard. We like making up for things. But God says, if you trust me, if you trust what my son did for you at Calvary, the gospel, that he shed his blood, rose again from the dead, and that blood was a, a payment for the wrath owed to you, that he absorbed it, he says, then you're right with me. So Paul's just here, he's saying, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power by which anybody can be saved. And that salvation means that it's God's righteousness has been revealed to you and you can take it because of what Jesus did. He says, that's why it's the dynamic. That's why it's so important. And then he goes on to say, then the righteous shall live by faith. There again, it's, this is a quote from Habakkuk and it's not a statement of how a Christian should live. It doesn't mean like, hey, if you're a Christian, you should live based on, based on your faith in God. That is a true statement, but that's not what, being said, what is being said here. The idea is reinforcing the beginning of verse 17, and it's this, that the person who is righteous will live because of their faith. They're righteous by faith, and so that person will live. Does that make sense? That that person will only live because they're righteous, because they trusted. So Paul is trying to make a very emphatic statement here. This might seem kind of academic, kind of boring, like why are we going over this? Because it's with these ideas that we have to get into his proclamation of sin and of condemnation. It doesn't become works. It doesn't become a try-hard scenario. Nothing changes. That God's love, God's redemption, and his plan for redemption, his accomplishment of redemption, and the life that we live, it doesn't change with what we're about to read. So I guess in one sense, forgive me for having such a preamble, but in another sense, bring all this context in with you as we read this. Because it's very important. Because this has been a flagship set of verses for condemnation, destruction, and really ruining some lives. So if we look at, we're going to read the whole section and then we'll go back through it. In verse 18, he says this. For the wrath of God is revealed, same word, apocalypteo. The, word of God, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his visible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since, excuse me, has been uh, purely, I lost my place. Hmm. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree uh, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
Now, I'm sure you can see right away why this is a disputed and a difficult passage in the day and age that we live, day and, uh, days that we live. And I want to make a few points about this in, in general before we go verse by verse. Number one, this is not a progression. In other words, he's not saying that when you disobey God, first you go into heterosexual impurity, then you go into a homosexual impurity, and then you just do rude things. This is not a progression. He's giving a list of people and how responses to God dictated who they became. Does that make sense? It's completely different than some weird thing of that everybody who disobeys God, disobeys God goes into some weird sexual immorality. Although, we'll talk about that because it is a primary thing that happens in society from the dawn of time. But what he's making the point here is that generically, overall, when a person disregards God in their life, they turn to something else to find fulfillment. That's kind of an oversimplification, and we'll get into it. But that's the gist of what's happening here. And he gives us three groups of people. And you might have noticed, three times it says he gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up to a debased mind, to a different... And literally, it means he abandoned them. And what's being said here is the fact that when people decide, I'm not going to go with God, I'm going to reject this idea. And it's not an ignorance. And we'll we'll point that out. This is not ignorance. This is a direct rejection of God that they are forced to then bring in as eternal beings to find something to try to satisfy themselves. And these are different ways that people do that and how it kind of comes out in their rejection. Again, just to draw your attention, this is evidently a certain people group that was happened, that is from the past. But even though this seems to be a people group from the past, it's very applicable to where uh, we live today. And then when we jump into chapter 2 next week, therefore you. <laughs> so he's going to go from they, 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 they to you and me. Back in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed... From heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So ungodliness, it comes from a root, root word which is sabo. Uh, and the only reason I bring that up is because it's, it's a-sabia or a-sabia. And, and you might be familiar, like we have a word that's atheist, right? So if someone's an atheist, they're saying, I reject an existence of a god. A, which is the prefix, which means no or non, theist. So non-theist. I'm a person that rejects uh, that, there's, that there's a God, essentially. So this is, uh, the, word, the Greek word sabo is, is uh, godliness or to show reverence for something. So in, when, what he's saying here, when he says, look, they're, un, they're ungodliness, the first idea is this. They were people that saw what is godly and they went the other direction. They saw what was reverent, not just reverent like, you know, a big hat and kind of like a weird stance or something, but the idea of reverence of giving credence or value to that which is from God or what God says. So he says, he's starting this off, he says, there is that God has a wrath. And that God's wrath is being revealed right now, it's present active. And it's interesting, even though so much of this is in the past tense, they were like this, they were like this, they did this, this happened back then, all these things. All these verbs like uh, um, revealed and all this, even though it's in, in our English, it's in uh, the past tense. In the Greek, it's actually in the present active or the aorist active, which just means it happened and it's still happening. It started and it's continuing to start and there's, and there's continuing to go and there's no view of its ending. Does that make sense? And I'm not trying to like be over academic or something like this. I just think it's very important in this specific chapter and others to really look at what exactly is being said here. And so what Paul is saying is that God is revealing. He's showing, and he has shown, and he's continuing to show, and we'll find out for in other different people groups it's worked out different ways, his wrath. We'll find out in chapter 2, to the Jews, he showed it through the law. To Gentiles without the law, it's revealed in their conscience and in the, the law written upon their hearts. Things like, you kind of just kind of know you shouldn't murder people, right? That's just kind of, you kind of know that, you know, have you ever seen a kid that lies? I don't know about you as parents. I never sat down with my children and said, here's what I need you to do. I'm going to ask you what happened, and I want you to tell me something different. No, they just did it. They just, they just came up with it on their own. They just lied. And then you can see the shame, right? Because they look at the floor, they kind of move around kind of weird, because they know inherently, I've told an, an untruth, and it was wrong. And, and I did that when I was a kid, and probably almost every one of us in this room at some point have lied, felt shame, even before we knew the, the, uh, the law of Moses or any of that. So how it's being revealed will cover 
in a, in a week or two. But it is, is, has was revealed, and it is revealed, and it's revealed against people that have chosen to make a lack of reverence, to disregard what God says is important. The second one there says is of unrighteousness, and it's the same side word. It's a dekia. It just means justice. Dekia is dekiao. is justice, and this is a dekia, meaning a lack of justice. So people that exhibited a lack of doing what is just. And we could probably identify that too. We've maybe uh, screamed someone down, which is probably never appropriate, but we've probably overreacted. You ever said to somebody, I'm sorry, I overreacted. You know, someone gave you your latte and it was too cold, and you're like, what next? You know, and you're like, that was an overreaction. I apologize. I do live in America. I do get to get a latte. Now I'm going to drive back to my house and watch Netflix. So, it's, you know, that was an overreaction. So it was unjust. So he says God's wrath is revealed. It's shown that there is wrath for these actions. Now, something that's important, and this, this has to do with the coexisting, is how does God's love coexist? How does Jesus look at Jerusalem, many of the people of Jerusalem that want to kill him, and say, how I would have gathered you together like a hen gathers her chicks. At the same time, the wrath of God abides and is upon and being revealed on all these unrighteous things. This seemed like kind of a dichotomy, right? And a lot of times you can kind of go, oh, what is it? Is it wrath? Is it not? It's noteworthy. And this is one of the places. Notice it doesn't say his wrath abides upon the men that do this, the anthropos that do this. It says that it's upon their works. It's upon their, their unrighteousness in this. You always splitting hair, James. Maybe. Except that if you were to go through right now and look up every place in every English translation where the word wrath is, like we said before, it's always a coming day. The wrath is not now. And, he's, and I am not trying to deny, you might say, oh, you're being soft, James. And yeah, it's probably true. I am being soft because I know I need a lot of mercy. But I'm also not being soft because I know and, and I'll acknowledge and the scripture teaches that one day Jesus Christ will return to this earth. And it says that his robes have blood to just below the knee. And when the, when the, the way the blood got there is because it says that he has trampled the nations. That's some pretty graphic imagery, that he's trampled the winepress of wrath. And the picture is that he stomped people, and they popped, and he got blood on his robe. And it says that on his thigh, it says, Lord of lords and King of kings. And his eyes are eyes of fire, and out of his mouth comes a sword that smites the nations. So this, that Jesus, he, we're, not, we're not moving away from that Jesus. We're not saying that God is not going to judge the earth and that there will be ferocious and radical and just judgment. But that's not today. And even in that radical and just judgment, I, I don't say radical like, oh, it's unfathomable, he shouldn't do that. Just radical, it's going to be completely out of our experience. Even in that judgment, he's still the God that so loves the world. But see, it's... Like any good father or any good family member, when you love something, you hate other stuff. If I love my daughters, I hate and will reap justice upon anything that would destroy them. If my daughters were to be assaulted or molested, I would reap vengeance and justice through the law on whatever happened. And I would hate it. I would despise it and I would want it to be crushed. I can love the person that's offended me, but I can demand the justice that's needed. And so, so it is with our God. He does not, Jeff even read it last week. The Lord takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. See, when Jesus shows up with his robe dipped in blood, it's not the bloodthirsty like wild man Randy Savage or something just like, oh yeah, like trying to just destroy everything. Like he's just so out of control and he's just, he just reached this boiling point in heaven and finally he's like, screw those guys! And just comes down and crushes them. Is that he finally says, enough is enough. My people are ready to come out. I love them. I've harvested who's going to be harvested, who's willing to be saved. And now for the rest, they must endure the justice that they've reaped. And he executes it. And, and it'll be a scary day. But he does not execute it rejoicing in the death of the wicked. That's, he, he loves human beings, every human being on the planet. So when we're reading here what Paul is saying, it's this huge warning. It's, kind of, it's like the bad news, as it were, of the gospel. It's the foundational truth of the gospel that you and I are hopelessly, wickedly, disgustingly, immorally lost, every one of us. 
And we demonstrate it in big ways and in small ways. And now he's just going to give us some classifications and how it goes down. He says, The wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the, in, excuse me, in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. So in this particular group of people, he says, look, what can be known about God is plain to them. So Paul is making this point, he's saying, in creation... Whether it be looking at a leaf through a microscope or just waking up and seeing a sunset or whatever it might be, he says, in creation, there is a testimony of a creator. Now, we in our society have fully and unilaterally, for the most part, rejected this idea. And we do anything and everything we can as a society to get away from the idea of a creator. Because the idea of a creator is this, divine nature and eternal power. So if there is a being that has divine nature, meaning that which is supernatural and is, in a sense, God-like, that transcends my own nature. Does that make sense? Divine nature and eternal power means accountability right away, doesn't it? Divine nature, somebody who knows better, and then someone who has the power to execute that nature and to bring that nature to bear upon everyone means accountability. So somehow in creation, he says that this is happening. But he goes on, and it's not just a passive thing like, oh, hey, look, a tree. Jesus must be God. That's not what he's saying. But it says here, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Literally, God has shined it in their faces. God has shined it. This is a really important part of the gospel. There are no ignorant people at judgment. There will not be anyone who stands before Jesus and says, I had no idea there was a creator. I had no idea that you had this kind of power. You know, uh, years ago, I went on this mission trip from California up to the UW, and we just, it was kind of a thing that our church did. It was kind of a, a church planting vision where essentially we'd go for like a month and just do like Bible studies every night, invitation, all these kind of things. It was actually really cool. People would get saved. And then typically you'd have a small group of people after that that would kind of start a church. You know, it was, it was, I don't know if it was the best model, but it was a model. And on the UW, the question I got the most, probably literally five or six times a day, and it was kind of funny because it was always this, what about Aborigines in Africa? And you're like, well, Aborigines are in Australia, number one, but the, but the question still stands. What about the man or the woman chilling in their hut, and they come out of their hut, and does God send that person to hell because there's no person with a Bible to tell them who Jesus is? Have you ever wondered about that? What about those people? I mean, if there's no missionaries there, if there's nobody... Well, number one, I think there's something we have to come to grips with. God loves to use human beings to fulfill their life and his commission, right? But he doesn't need to. He doesn't, he doesn't need us. He loves us and he, he, wants, he wants us to be with him. I remember years ago, and I've shared this before, but years ago, I was watching a, a secular National Geographic uh, film, and the clean kind. And it was about, I think it was the Inuit, uh, the, the uh, Inuit uh, up above the Arctic Circle. And they were kind of interviewing some different uh, Eskimos, and they were saying, and basically what happened was some missionaries showed up uh, to these Eskimos who hadn't really had had really no contact with the white man until then, and began to teach them about Jesus, try to work on the language and you know, show them. And, and right away, they say, oh, no, 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 we already know this Jesus guy. We have a different name for him, and they had a name in their language. But it was, it was literally like this, this, <clears throat> excuse me, this guy who looked like he's about 110, and he just was like, no, my grandpa, 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 grandpa. No, he was hunting seals, and he had a vision. And Jesus appeared to him and told him that, that he had paid for our wrong. So we just all get saved now. And that was that. And so the missionary's like, oh. <laughs> I don't know what their response was. They were, they were, I'm sure they were baffled. But the point being is that whether it's through visions or dreams or creation, 
He is shining on them. See, this is, this is something that can be difficult. It was difficult for me because of my Christian upbringing. God wants people to be saved. He cares about them. Just like you care about your children or brothers or sisters or parents, that you have that deep you know, longing for their good. That's how God feels about human beings. All human beings. His wrath is ready for those who reject him because justice is necessary and love promotes justice. But his heart is for your good. It's for, for, for you to excel, for you to be fulfilled, for you to know him in who he is. And so when, when, we, when we, we don't have to worry about aborigines or Inuits or Lakota or any race or any person anywhere on the planet. Because either God is using missionaries or dreams or visions or the stars. And he has bound himself because he said, if anyone calls upon me, I will answer them. If anyone seeks me early, they will find me. So this isn't an issue of ignorant people that are then crushed by God. That person doesn't actually exist. This is about people that have gotten to know him and have rejected him at a, at a, at a very core sense. So he's, he's making this case. He says they knew him. They knew his divine nature and they knew his eternal power. And it was clearly perceived. It was shown in them. Then he goes on to say they were, are without excuse. And that's going to be the conclusion of every people group, whether it's these people, Jews or Gentiles. There is no excuse before God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts were darkened. Now, this no God is literally the idea that they had a full knowledge of him. They understood it. And we don't want to belabor that point too far. But they knew God, but they didn't give him honor. This is not foreign to us. This is probably a daily occurrence for many of us, myself included in that number. We know God, but we don't honor him. And so what happens for these people as Christians, we have the Holy Spirit in us and continues to outreach to us and hopefully we respond to that. But in this context, these are people that knew of him. They didn't honor him. And so because they habitually and in a final final sense rejected him, gave him no thanks, it says they became futile in their thinking. And the word futile there, it just means purposeless or worthless. They became purposeless in their thinking. And this shouldn't super surprise us because any time we take God out of the equation of our thinking process, it is purposeless because God designed us to be with him. Now, I'm not saying like if you're sitting on your couch thinking like, I wonder how the Hubble telescope works, that that's somehow pointless. There's a point to that. It's to gain knowledge and understand the universe. That's fine. But what I'm saying is when we remove and we reject all that God has, all that gives him honor, all that he says is good or bad or whatever, our thinking becomes purposeless. And the interesting thing is when we go down those roads with purposeless thinking, what happens? Anxiety cranks in, doesn't it? If I have no purpose and no security, no understanding, if the world is random, if I am just ooze, if I have no point, if there's no one in my corner, if there's no reality, there's no reason to go to work. You know why I got saved? Not that it matters to you, but I'll tell you because it works out for me and I'm the one talking. I got saved because I grew up rich, very well off. And by the time I was 10, I had about anything you could want. And I realized at the age of 10, My life and the life of my parents is pointless. My dad had his own architecture firm. My mom was the principal of a school. I was a high school dropout. Because I looked at them and I looked at all the teachers in my high school and I looked at every adult and I looked at them and and everything that was promoted to me as a child, which is get some, get rich, work hard, retire well. I looked at it with all, I could walk into my room and play with any new toy I wanted to. I could go to school, go ride my parents' nice cars, and I realized they are just going to die. And so am I. And so at about 12 years old, for me personally, I was like, I'm done with this life. I have no reason to live. Absolutely none. Money means nothing. I mean, I was comfortable. I'm not saying like, oh, gosh, I wish I wasn't comfortable. I'm saying, you know, this is, this is pointless. 
when we remove God from our thinking, our thoughts are futile. We become bobbing and lost. But because we are eternal, we, we attach things to value. We attach value to things that's fake. Money and sex and uh, uh, what is it? Uh, fame or, or influence. And we say, if I had those things, well, then I would be complete. But it's purposeless thinking. It's worthless thinking. So even though they knew him, they rejected him, their thoughts became worthless, they were futile, and then their foolish hearts were darkened. And it, it means they're morally senseless. So there's this initial rejection, a consideration of God and understanding of who he is, and then a shoving aside. And then from that, that shoving aside, we become purposeless, even though we jump in every rat race we can to try to find purpose and meaning. We, we just pour ourselves into it. And from there, it says that our, our, for these particular people, and it happens in humanity also, that from that place, that our minds, they become morally senseless. All of a sudden, when I'm purposeless, when I've rejected what God said is good, then I have no moral compass. I'm suppressing the truth in my life. And at that point, honestly, it's kind of like the old talk we all heard. If there's no absolute truth, then there's no point to anything. If there's no absolute truth, you can be murdered by someone and it's fine because that person thought it was fine. That's why my truth, my truth is like the most worthless and joke of a proclamation that has ever been. It's philosophically inane. It's ridiculous. My truth you can have my truth about ice cream, and that's about it. After that, there is truth, and there is untruth. And, and, and so we have to be careful that when we reject what is truth, and not surprised when we see people around us rejecting what is truth, that their minds go to weird places. Because why does it matter anymore? Legitimately, why does it matter anymore? I can do whatever I want. Now, society will say, this is bad and this was bad. Well, society 50 years said, you probably shouldn't try to self-medicate with different drugs. Society today says, what's the point? Medicate all you want. It changed. Society changed. So if truth is, if it can sway, if I can live by my truth, then it's no surprising that I'm going to become morally bankrupt and I'm going to wander. Because I have nothing to anchor me. And so that led to another place. It says there, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, which glory, again, is the idea of good opinion or weightiness. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So it's a natural progression that when I reject God as having honor and glory and, and worthy of consideration, that I have to look to creation. Typically, the first look is to me. I deserve honor and glory. I'm really great. I want to pamper me. I want to make sure I'm squared away. I'm numero uno. I look out for me. And then I treat people from that, that place, right? You've offended me, so off with your head. My sovereignty has been, you know, whatever, broken, and I don't like it, and now I'm going to treat you like poo, and then I'll justify it in my mind because I have no moral compass. Because what I say is true is true because I've rejected that which is ultimately true. So all these things, turning to creation for that which you want, this is what's been happening from the beginning. Human beings have always been willing to sacrifice to idols or to whatever it might be for the same things. It's never changed. Fertility, money, land, power, it has never changed. Whether it's a, a, aborting a baby to continue to get, you know, in your career. I'm not harping on women that get abortions. I'm just saying that we were, whether it's all the way back to Moloch, where you throw your firstborn onto a burning statue so that you can get more land, or whether it's killing children today so that you can continue with that. Man's desire after he rejects God has never changed. We've always been the same for 6,000 years. So don't be surprised that our society is going this way. As a nation, we want to reject and take Jesus out of every single thing we can. But we want to maintain all the blessings of the Holy Spirit. We want to say, no, we're not going to acknowledge the one who is love and who perpetuates love, but we're going to try to fake it over here and have love. It's why we're in the position we're in that we can't accept. We can't even have conversations without rage. And, and, and just radical passion 
We can't even discuss things anymore because we have rejected love, impersoned, embodied. And instead, we've gone to creation. We worship creation in a lot of different ways now, but we're running out of time. So it says there, interestingly enough, verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity. So this, this section right here is talking about basically heterosexual sex outside of marriage. The term there, God gave them up. He abandoned. When man begins to worship the creation, that's you and I. We worship us and everything about us. And when you, you see, and when, when man is just given to passion and to emotion and to the feel-good and the feel-it-all moment, that's where you get uh, Roman emperors like Caligula, who just basically lived a, just one of the most outlandish sex lives you can imagine. That's where you get even some of the Israeli kings of old that have the 900 concubines. 900 concubines. What's with that? Like if you rolled a year schedule, that's three ladies a day. That's ridiculous. But that's where we go. Sex is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, motivators and passions of human beings. It's one of the things that drives us, whether it's, it's procreation or just sex. It drives us. And so he's, Paul's making the point that when you abandon God and what he says is good and bad, that when you abandon that, that you, you begin to worship creation as you dive into creation where your treasure is, there will your heart be also, right? That's what Jesus taught us. So if I'm focusing on creation and my passion and what I feel and these things, of course I'm going to zoom in on those things which are most driving in my life. Food, sex, money, power. So he says, that's what happened. That's what they did. That's what these people did. That's where they went. So we don't have to like look at these people and go, I can't believe it. They're just horrible people. No, they're us. They're humans. And they're going where humans go when they reject God's influence into a life. So they dishonor their bodies among themselves. This is things like threesomes, bringing other people into your marriage, stuff like that. That's the idea of impurity. I'm not trying to get too graphic or gross, but that's what we're talking about here. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They exchanged it. They had the truth, and they traded it. They gave it away to instead do a lie. Again, normal human behavior. How many times have you told yourself, this time will be different? Bad day at work, anxiety, depression, Netflix, gallon of ice cream. This time it will be different. This time I'll be satisfied. This time, oh, never mind. Oh, I feel empty from watching eight hours of Netflix, and I feel terrible from eating ice cream, and now I'm going to you know, be disposed for a while. But we do it, don't we? We tell ourselves, I'll feel different this time. If I self-medicate with entertainment, I'll feel different this time. It'll get my mind off it, only to find ourselves empty again. We lied to ourselves. I'll smoke a bunch of weed. I'll shoot up. I'll feel so good. You will feel good. You're going to feel great. Only to come around again to the same emptiness is how humanity works. It is not weird to exchange the truth for a lie. It's not a good idea. It's very destructive. We do it all the time. If I yell at my kids, they'll, I'll get them to be quiet. The truth is, I'll lose them later, though. But we lie to ourselves. We said, no, this, it'll be okay this time. I just need this one time. If I exercise my wrath on someone, then they'll clearly come around to my point of view. We extend, it's, it's commonplace to exchange truth for lie. So we don't have to look at these people and go, I can't believe it. We just go, oh, yeah, okay, makes sense. I understand this. So they exchanged the truth for the lie about God for, uh, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And we already kind of talked about that. Who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up, abandoned them again. And he says, for this reason, because they've exchanged the truth, they're not interested in it. And the, the idea isn't that God said, I don't care about humanity anymore. The idea is God did not force them to do what he wanted them to do and what would be good for them. He took his hands away and said, okay, I'm going to let you do what you're going to do. I'm not going to force you because you have choice. You are a human being. He does not want robots. He wants people to get to know him and that love him and are going to walk with him. And he says in here, 
He gives them over or us over to, to uh, dishonorable passions for their women exchanged the natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Now, I want to point out here, this is not an end-all uh, conclusion of why people become homosexual. And I want to point that out. This is not that like every single homosexual on the planet just instantly began burning and that's why they became homosexual. I want to be careful there. Is, is, are we saying that homosexuality is sin or acting on same-sex attraction is sin? Yes, we are. And I don't say that in anger. I don't say that in wrath. I don't say that because I have something against homosexuals. I've known tons of gay people in my life, and they're usually very kind people. So I, I'm not making any statement other than that kind of sexuality. God says it's astray from what he planned. And so, again, we don't want to use this to hate we don't want to use this to, to, to rally. Because if we're going to use it to rally, well, I guess we better continue here. Um, are we going to rally against covetousness? Are we going to rally against gossip? Are we going to rally against stripe? Are we going to take those things? Are we going to pull people aside that we know are gossips and go, well, here's the thing. You can get saved okay, by grace, but you can't be a gossip afterwards. You can't do that. Because that's what we do to homosexuals. They come to our church, we're like, here's the gospel, it's the good news, but here's the thing, you, you, just, you just can't be homosexual anymore. Which is true. But God's going to work that out on them, right? That's between them and the Lord. It's not, it's not between us and them and the Lord. I get a question a lot. I'm not putting the question down, like, what would you do if a gay couple come here for a long time? I'd let them come. Until some point, if the Lord said, hey, you should go talk to them about what's happening in their life and, and, and to honor me. Then I would go and talk to them. And I would trust God to lead us through that and to be able to talk about it. Just like I would go and talk to a gossip. If someone was just spreading stuff all around the church all the time, I'd go to them and be like, hey, you can't do that. If they said, hey, I don't care about you. I'm going to do what I want. They'd be like, all right, you have to leave because you can't gossip here. It'd be the same with anything else. It'd be the same if you had cohabitation, sexual connotation. It'd be like, hey, you know, you, you can't do that here. We're here to follow Jesus. Well, hey, forget you. I do what I want. Okay, that's cool. You can't be here. We love you. God loves you, but we have expressed things that we have to do, the Bible tells us to do. So it's just important that when we read these things, we consider them, we're not rejecting anybody. God's wrath is not on homosexuals right now. It's there. It's there for every single person who rejects God. It's not special for gay people. It's not special for swingers. It's not special for gossipers. It's there in the end, and it will judge the unrighteousness and the ungodliness of men. So that's, that's just the truth of the gospel. But just as God's wrath has been revealed for these things, as we read prior, you know, prior to this, the gospel and God's righteousness has been revealed to not have to endure those things, to not have to go through the wrath of God. See, the emphasis is on the gospel and on the power, not on the wrath. Is it there? Is it real? Yes. Is it the emphasis? No, it's not. It's the fact, because most people, honestly, when you get down to brass tacks and they're going to be honest with you, they already know that they're condemned. They already know that they have a sin issue. So there could be a time where you really need to tell somebody about that. But a lot of times you just need to say, hey, you can be forgiven of your sin and you can be cleansed and you can go on an amazing walk with Jesus and God's going to work those things out in your heart. And it's without condemnation, without anger, and without rage. But if we were to look at this, this list here, and we don't want to exhaust it, I think it's important to understand that these are things that are all anti-Christ. They're anti-God. They are a-sabo or a-decadia, the idea they're unjust. He says there that they're that malice. You know, malice is just, or maliciousness, it's just, it's just the desire for bad to happen. Like, you know, if, like for example, you can, if, you're, if your kids are fighting or something, or something happens, like maybe you've witnessed this with your kids, like one kid just tries to get by the other and bumps the other, and the other's like, ah, what are you doing? And you're like, oh, I think they were just trying to get their milk. Like, I think everything's okay. It's not, it's not a big deal, right? But then there could be other times where one kid, like, shoves the other and tries, you know, tries to push them out. Not my kids, some of the other kids, but you know, they just try to, you know, they try to do something like that, try to get them out of the way. That's malicious. Malicious is doing something that harms another individual for something that you want. And that's, it, it, we can do that all sorts of weird ways. We can maliciously say to We could say to somebody very hard true because we love them and we want them to move on with their lives, right? Or we can be malicious and we know it's going to hurt them and we can say it that way. And he says, ultimately, that this way of thinking, that for these, this sect of people, it says that God, he gave them up to it. 
They, were, they rejected him, and so he said, you're not going to go my way. And this was the end result of rejecting God. So all these things that we've been talking about, whether it's uh, exchanging the truth for a lie or whether it's being shown the truth about God, for us personally, as, as, now this is speaking of unbelievers, but for us as believers, it doesn't change the fact that these things, these habitual sins in our lives, they're still destructive and they're still anti-God. And so the call for us as believers, is to repent from those things and to no longer to exchange the truth for a lie. Oh, it'll be different this time, or I'll be better this time, or I don't really need to follow God in this way, or he does not really, or ultimately where it says there, um, uh, where does it say it? Uh, Verse 28, and they did not see fit to acknowledge God. In this case, it means literally they weighed God and found him lacking. They didn't see fit. It's the idea that they looked at God and his truth, and they said, that's lacking, and I don't want it. And that, end, that resulted into malice and hate and destruction. So I encourage you, this is not a downer word. It shouldn't be anyway. Because God loves us enough to let us know these things, right? The smitings of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy, the Proverbs say. In other words, it's better to be punched by a friend than it is to be kissed by an enemy. And the idea is that God comes along, and he doesn't lay all these things out because he's like, ha, 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 He lays these things out because I love you. He says, I don't want you to go through these things. I don't want you to endure these things. I don't, I don't want you to, to go through the fall from these things. I don't want you to reject me. I want you to walk in what I originally made you for. I mean, think about that. God made you interesting to him. You know, it's, it's, it never ceases to amaze me when I do it or someone else do it, does it, and they just esteem someone else as disinteresting. I don't, I don't want to pay attention. You're disinteresting to me. What you have to say to me is, is I don't really care, and I don't have time for it. And I mean, you can obviously not have time for things, but it's just, a, it, it's just kind of this, you're not, you're not interesting. Where God says, I made every single one of you with eternity in your hearts, your eternal beings, and you're interesting to me. I want to talk to you, Jesus would say. I want to hear what you have to say. I want to dialogue with you, a relationship with you. And so he comes to these things and says, if you insist on these things, if you exchange the truth for a lie, he says, I'll let you do it. I'll let you go that direction. It's a tough road to hoe. It's, to Paul, in some translations, it says that he, he's, Jesus says to him, Paul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And the goad, like, you know, the sharp thing they used to, poke cows in the booty with when they're trying to get their cart to go. That's the idea. He says that, that Paul's kicking back against Jesus' goad, like, hey, come to me, come to me, and Paul keeps kicking it, a sharp stick. And, and Jesus tells me, he says, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And for many of us, myself included, we, we've kicked against the goads, and we know what it feels like, and we know the, the difficulty of it. Don't buy into the lie, because I buy into it all the time. I'm not saying this from superiority. Don't buy into the lie that this time, ignoring God will be better for you. It won't. It will be destruction. It will be pain. It will be anxiety. It will be depression. Hebrews tells us sin is pleasurable for a season. Sin feels good, man. You know why they worship the creator and then get down on all their sexual wildness? Because there's a pleasure side of it. Absolutely. You know why we sit and watch Netflix for eight hours to drown our sorrow with ice cream and pie? Because there's a part of it that feels good. Sin always has an upside. Heroin feels great for like 25 minutes. All this, they all have an upside, but it's a lifetime of ruin afterwards. And so for you and I, don't buy the lie. It's not worth it. It won't work out in the end. It'll leave us destitute. God is merciful. And he's amazing and kind and gracious, and he beckons us to come to him. And it's amazing the wreck that we can make of our lives that, that God seems to be able to restore. But let's not test him. Let's not, uh, let's not go for that route. Let's trust him today. And let's walk in what he's shown us today in the light that you have. Uh, walk in that, and it'll, it'll be well for you. So um, we'll pray, and we have some food. Uh, I'm sh- I don't know if they still ring that big bell or not, but... Uh, They'll let us know when it's time for the food. I encourage you to join us if you'd like to for some fellowship and hangout time and a a tasty meal. Or if you want to pray, we'll be up here for prayer. Uh, The Lord loves you. Father, we thank you for your kindness and mercy to us. Lord, thank you for your truth, albeit it can be hard to bear. Thank you, Lord, that you 
uh, are working and moving amongst every human being on the planet. Lord, we thank you that we get to be part of the building of your kingdom. And Lord, we, just, we truly confess that uh, we love ourselves a lot of the time. And we do exchange truth for a lie. We do think that this time sin will work out for us. And we just want to give that to you, Lord, with open hands. And we ask, Lord, that you would lead us this week. You would bless us this week with your presence, with your kindness, with your provision. And Lord, we pray for divine appointments to go and to talk to people who have exchanged the truth for a lie. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in our community, in our nation, to open up hearts to hear the gospel to be saved. Lord, help us to communicate your love to people and to communicate the, the truth of an exchanged life that, that Jesus provides us. Lord, you're very good, and we really appreciate it, usually anyway. And we just pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, God bless you guys.